Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Good morning, good morning, holy friends. Great to see you. I know some of you are coming back from vacation. Some of you are um, away on vacation, listening to the recording. Some of you are still on vacation, but still tapped in, uh, whatever you're doing. Some of you are just working. Uh, can you believe some of us still do that? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's great to be with you all. Thank you for being with you uh, here with us. And today we're going to learn about Nichum Avelim, comforting mourners. As always in Jewish learning, there is critical thought. In addition to critical thought, we want to try to cultivate kindness into our lives. And there are many ways to do that as we're exploring. exploring. And today we're going to brainstorm not only on some of the traditional approaches, but some of the emotional intelligence and social dimensions around comforting mourners. This is different than the one we already did, which was on um, burying the dead. I think these are the only two that we're dealing with that are directly related to death, but I may be wrong. We, we shall see. So friends, let's start with a poll today. My experience with mourning option one, I have found immersion in mourning practices to be meaningful. Option two, I have found immersion in mourning practices to be quite challenging. Option three, I have never really immersed in mourning practices because I'm not so traditional. Option four, I've never really immersed in mourning practices because I've, I've been fortunate to not lose a close family member. So let's see what you want to check off over there. Okay, I think we're probably ready to see our results. Okay, a good split here. Nice to have a nice, nice split. Uh, 33% find immersion in morning practices to be quite meaningful. 17% find it quite challenging. 33% have never done it because they're not so traditional. And 17% have never done it because they've never lost someone in their family. Very close. Okay, very cool. All right, let's jump in. Now, I want to make a note about Parshat Chukat because that's the Parsha this week, which is very relevant to our topic today. Who dies this week? Anyone? Miriam. Miriam dies this week. And what was she known? What was her gift? What did she provide the Jewish people? Water. Water. Thank you. And this miracle was accessible um, to the Jewish people because of her merit. And when she dies, the miracle stops. But the 16th century rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Alshech, explains that the Israelites lost the water because they failed to mourn Miriam. Later, later in this chapter, uh, after Miriam's death, Aaron dies and all the house of Israel bewailed Aaron for 30 days. And when Moshe dies at the end of, book of De the book of Deuteronomy, it says, and the Israelites bewailed Moses in the steps, in, in the steps of Moab for 30 days. Shloshim, 30 days, right? But when Miriam dies, the Torah doesn't say that anyone cries at all. And so the water of Miriam's merit dries up. The, the people didn't appreciate who she was. Okay, now, so the simple read there is, that was her gift. She died, her gift is gone. The Al-Sheikh reads it is, it is a punishment to the people for having not mourned her, which is interesting. Now, the obvious read, we, we don't even have to call it feminist read. It's really just a humanistic read is that they didn't mourn her because she's a woman, right? Like they just didn't appreciate women the way they appreciated men. And so they didn't see it, right? So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that her gift was so subtle and kind of hidden 
in a way that they didn't almost attribute it to her. Um, they took for granted the water. Yeah, the thunder and lightning of Moshe um, bringing down Torah. How can you miss that? And what is Aaron's gift? Bringing peace. He brought peace between husbands and wives. That's why it says, for Moshe, only the men mourned. But for Aaron, the men and women both mourned, right? We talked about that last week because he brought peace between husbands and wives. But with Miriam, everyone takes for granted their water. How many people drink a cup of water each morning and they're like, oh, the miracle of my water. Like, I'm like, it's like I won the lottery. I've got clean water. You go into the global south for a week and you're going to experience the miracle of clean water. If you're drawing dirty water from a well, I mean, the, 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 the billions of people in the world who can't access clean water, it's a, huge, it's a huge problem. So you take it for granted. They took Miriam for granted. So either it's because she's a woman or it's because they took for granted water or both whatever the case is. So anyways, right in our Parsha this week, we see what happens when you don't mourn, uh, mourn for someone. So friends, the mitzvah of Nihum Avelim, Nihum Avelim, comforting mourners, is a quintessential form of kindness in Jewish thought. While of course mourners may need emotional support as soon as their beloved one passes away, <coughs> and at times even prior to the actual death, the formal process of Nihum Avelim begins after the burial of the deceased has been completed. Right? Just a reminder of that. Until the burial is concluded, all funeral procedures, including eulogies and the recitation of Psalms and Kaddish, while they may be and should be comforting and cathartic for the mourners, are actually a fulfillment of a separate mitzvah of Kavod Hamit, which is pr paying proper respect to the deceased. At the conclusion of a traditional burial, all present form a shura consisting of two parallel rows that begins that process as the formally leaves the cemetery, right? It is the leaving of the cemetery that the mitzvah of Nichum Avelim kicks in, comforting the mourners, right there with those lines. The mourners pass through the shura and those present recite may hamakom, the omnipresent console you together with everyone who mourns for Zion and Jerusalem. When the mourners return home from the cemetery, they partake of a se'udat havra'ah, a meal of consolation. Others should provide the meal for the se'udat havra'ah. The reason for this is that one might feel too distanced or distraught to eat. And so we want to be sure we nourish them at that time. And just this picture may be deceiving. You don't have to serve them lax. There's nothing that says lax is necessary, okay? I know the picture tells you lax, but you don't have to give them lax, okay? <laughs> the, the comforting process continues through the shiva the first week of mourning. Oftentimes, there will be a minion at the shiva house enabling the avilim to recite Kaddish. Some comforters may wish to bring food to ensure the mourners have meals prepared for them. In many communities, meals are more formally organized for the entire week. It's a very nice thing to have the community help organize the meals. So on day one, you don't receive 20 meals and day two, nothing, right? You know, spread out the love a little bit. Comforting mourners is one of the ways that the Talmud explains we are to emulate God. Why? Because it says over here in Sota, God comforts the mourning as it is written. And it was after the death of Avraham that God blessed Yitzchak, his son. So too, you must comfort the mourning. Maimonides further teaches that one can fulfill the mitzvah of loving your fellow as yourself through actions of comforting mourners. We might think then that we should comfort others in the way we would want to be comforted, right? Love another the way you, as you want to be loved. So to comfort another as we want to be comforted. But that, of course, is not the case. Rather, we should comfort them the way they want to be comforted. So what do some people want? They want people all around them. They don't want to be alone. They want social, right? What do other people want? They want isolation. What do some people want? They want to eat. What do other people want? They want to like share stories and cry, right? People are very different. And, and not only are people different, people are themselves are different depending on who they've lost, right? Some relationship is a very strained one. They don't really want to mourn. There's still anger. In other relationships, um, you know, it's like total shock. Imagine losing a 95-year-old parent versus losing a uh, four-year-old child. 
And also some people think, oh, it's 95. You shouldn't be so sad. They lived a long and healthy life, right? Okay, they may have lived a long and healthy life, but you're still really sad, right? And so there's no way to expect, there's no kind of universal norms around this. Pirke Avot, for example, teaches, do not comfort your friend at a time when their deceased lies before them, right? This is a reminder of what we said earlier, that there's, we have to give a little time even before we comfort. The Shulchan Aruch similarly writes, the consolers are not to speak until the mourners speak. The mourner sits at the front of the room and once they nod to indicate that the consolers should leave, they are not permitted to remain any longer, right? This is the idea that is not seen so much in liberal shiva houses, but is definitely seen in traditional shiva houses that you don't approach the mourner. The mourner sits alone up front and you walk in and you find your seat, but you don't go over to them, right? They sit and they, you only go to them if they, if they call you up to them. The idea is just to sit and be present, but not approach them. Again, in the liberal Jewish world, people naturally approach them. I'm sorry for your loss, right? Um, maybe how are you today? Um, or, you know, what's, what's happening for you? Whatever people say, maybe you want to, maybe some folks here even want to share some of the things that you say when you approach someone, because some people feel they don't know what to say. Um, but that's in a liberal Jewish home. And in a more traditional Jewish home, you do not approach, you do not approach the mourner. Mourning can be very sad. At the same time, it can be disorienting for many. It's easy to forget this. Comforters may have never lost someone in a way that completely shattered the world. And it may be hard to relate to the emotional processing another's going through. It can also be a time of complicated emotions. Some may only feel sadness. Others may feel relief, while some may be immersed in guilt and regret. Some might be thinking of memories, Others may be thinking about theology. While the Jewish tradition takes a humble stance on answering such questions, we surely shouldn't silence someone who is struggling. It says in Pirkei Avot, it is not within our ability to understand the prosperity of the wicked or the sufferings of the righteous. So we don't try to explain such things, but we can listen. The rabbis further teach in Moed Katan, weep for the mourners and not for their loss. For those who have passed, have gone to eternal rest, but we, those left behind to mourn, are suffering. At the same time, while Jewish tradition understands the primary goal of comforting mourners as an act of kindness to the living, it is also considered an act of respect towards the deceased. A comforter should, a comforter should of course seek the right balance, as we mentioned above, must honor the wishes of the mourner while paying respect to the relative they are mourning. A comforter may think, for example, that it's appropriate to share a fond memory of the deceased, but the avel may not be interested in memories at this particular moment. One must be sensitive to the needs and desires of the mourners at all times. While all of this is true for how we support Jewish mourners, the Talmud teaches that one should comfort and visit non-Jewish mourners as well, right? From a universalistic perspective, this of course makes sense, but it's important to note that the Talmud itself um, sees this as an imperative, right? And there, there might be a whole different set of mourning practices. If somebody was, was Vietnamese or Brazilian or Russian, right? The way one mourns might be very different. Um, from, from Jews. In addition, it's not only a privilege to invite others into one's mourning, but a responsibility as well to not rob them. A mourner can and should give others the chance to fulfill the mitzvah of Nichum Avelim. In keeping with the theme of sensitivity to the mourners discussed above, the Avelim may wish to publicize a schedule of hours for visiting hours in order to give them time to eat their meals, wake up, and go to sleep when they choose or simply have needed alone time for themselves. Of course, we should really honor that. If they say people should visit from six to seven, we shouldn't show up earlier or stay late. One rabbi traces the responsibility to be comforted all the way back to the beginning of the world. Here's what it says over here in the Midrash Avot de Rabbi Natan. <clears throat> After Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's son died, Rabbi Eliezer said, Adam had a son, of course, Abel, who died, yet he allowed himself to be comforted. 
And how do we know that he allowed himself to be comforted? For it said, and Adam knew his wife again, and they had another son. You too must let yourself be comforted. Now, this is, a, this is very interesting on a number of levels. Number one, I want to remind us that, that what does it mean to have sex in the Torah? That it uses the language of knowledge. He knew her, right? He knew her. There's, there, it's not just a bodily experience, this sexual experience. It is one of knowledge. He, th- she knows him and he knows her through this encounter. So too, we learn here, the idea of physical intimacy as an act of comforting. Now, in Shiva, it is prohibited for a couple to have, have sex. So, and that might be like exactly what one of them wants, right? Like, like in such a time of distress, like a, a bodily form of intimacy to kind of be comforted. But that first week, it's prohibited traditionally. But after that, we see after Shiva, this idea of returning one another to comfort one, um, one's, one's uh, partner through this experience. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did when, uh, when Cain killed Abel uh, after they mourned. So that's very interesting that the rabbis kind of uh, suggest that. And, um, uh, and that they're kind of comforting uh, each other. As mentioned, uh, as mentioned earlier, as comforters take leave of the mourners, they refer to God as hamakom, the place. One reason for this is because God is omnipresent. Another explanation is that we as people are to cultivate a space where divinity can be felt, a healing space where one feels less alone. Why should we give space? Dr. Ron Wolfson, a well-known uh, capital C conservative um, um, teacher at AJU um, in LA comments, the great wisdom in this insight lies in allowing the mourner to focus on his or her grief, not on the social niceties of formal greetings. Um, So this here, Wolfson is touching on this idea we mentioned earlier um, around this idea of not approaching the mourner. Um, And also this idea of calling it a space this idea that um, we hold a space for the person. There is yet another beautiful reason provided for referring to God as Hamakom. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik suggests we refer to God as Hamakom, the place, precisely when one may think that God is in no place, that God is simply absent. The mourner may reason, where is God? How could God take my beloved? At such a time, Rav Soloveitchik explains, We tell the mourner that while it may seem that God is no place, in fact, God is out there someplace. The mourner may not be feeling that right now, but the very knowledge that God is indeed out there someplace may provide some level of comfort. We learn from the book of Job that we are to sit with mourners rather than stand in their presence, right? The mourner is sitting on a low stool and rather than stand above them, We um, want to sit with them. Here's what it says in the book of Job in chapter two. When they saw him, Job, from a distance, they broke into loud weeping. Each one tore their robe, right, tearing Kriya, and threw dust into the air and onto their head. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. None spoke a word to him for they saw how very great was his suffering. So this is one of the earliest sources for this morning practice of seven days and seven nights and of sitting on a low place and sitting together. Um, It is important for family, friends, and community members to be deeply supportive and responsive. It's also important to remember that people can say and do otherwise abnormal things in times of pain. The Talmud teaches, A person is not held responsible for what they say while in pain. Still, it is also important for mourners themselves to try as best as possible to not be judgmental of others who don't make it to the Shiva house or who show up in ways that may rub the mourner the wrong way. One of the reasons that we want to fully embrace the burial, the Shiva, the Shloshim, Kaddish, 
and the year-long Avelut for parents is that our tradition wants us to stop there. It wants us to stop there. Yet there's an annual yard site, but we need to get back to life and ultimately be strengthened and not weakened by a loss. The rabbis instructed us not to add to the periods of mourning. The best way to not add, the rabbis believed, is to max out the spiritual opportunities of grieving, remembering, and celebrating within the cycle structure we've inherited. So we may hear in other cultures, we don't get sad when someone dies. We celebrate their life. Why should I be sad? We're celebrating their life. Judaism takes the opposite approach. Be really sad. Embrace the sadness, right? And order that you can be liberated from that sadness and be joyful after the set periods of mourning. If you never fully embrace that sadness, it's going to flow out into the rest of your life and never be contained, right? Contain it. Fully embrace it. Go to the depths of it. Sit in a low chair. Don't go to work. Take down your mirrors. Don't worry about your makeup or your nice clothes, right? Sit there and just uh, be in it in order that it doesn't get prolonged and you can get back to life even stronger than where you started. Life is all too short and death, no matter how prepared one can be, is all too startling at times. As humans, we strive to make meaning of our lives and deaths. And as Jews, we add a rich tradition of wisdom to that inquiry and search process. There's no one right way to feel, no one right way to mourn and grieve, and there's no one right way to offer comfort. Each of us can cultivate the emotional intelligence and the spiritual imagination to creatively offer the best of what we have to offer. It doesn't all have to be at a graveside or during Shiva. We have weeks, months, and years to be of support to others. Mourning is not a one week or one year journey, but a lifetime journey. As I shared um, on, a, 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 on a different week, Rabbi Avi Weiss shared a helpful way of thinking of this. He said, when your parent dies, a light goes off in your home. That light never turns back on, but over time you learn how to get around in the dark. May we all be comforters and may we all be comforted. Okay, friends, I would love to hear from you about all of this. Truly. Hi. Hi, Cheryl. Hello. Um, I think that Jews have it totally right because we've been through other situations where people, non-Jewish people have lost someone and they don't know what to do. They don't know how, they don't really know maybe their, maybe their particular uh, religious observance, if they have any, doesn't really help them. I mean, even those people that have very little Jewish observance, for example, know about Shiva and know about, you know, wh what it means to mourn, you know, however more or less they do. But um, I, I just have found over the years that we really have it right, that we have a specific, it's a laid out, just like you just laid it out of what we're supposed to do what that what what our feelings are and they're okay and when we're supposed to stop yeah and i just think we just have it right yeah cheryl i i um that that really resonates with me and i think there's many jewish practices that we may have an ambivalent relationship to um like ooh, like i see why other cultures do it that way and and i'm not sure how connected i am to this but i do have this deep sense that um, of all of our practices, the most psychologically kind of astute um, and and uh, and relevant in many ways is the, are, are these morning practices. That's not to say that if for somebody else it doesn't resonate that they should feel bad or they've done it wrong because it's not going to resonate for everyone. But I do have this sense, um, uh, like you said, that this is incredibly uh, incredibly powerful. Where I'm troubled today is in the breakdown of community. Um, we have very few American Jews who are part of deep community. I mean, I mean, if you actually take synagogue uh, members, that's only 10 to 15 percent. 
And, and that assumes all the 10 and 15% are actually deeply immersed in their synagogue in a sense that feels like a community, which is already a, a very small minority. And so the number of American Jews that have an obvious community to show up and support them for Shiva is really only the small sliver of those who are deeply immersed, people like you and me, Cheryl, perhaps. Actually, not me. Not me. I'm not. I, I'm not immersed in a synagogue community. You think I would be because I'm a rabbi. I'm like. I, I'm like very active as a Jew. But I, I'm not immersed in a in a synagogue community. And so um, maybe maybe you're the better example of people who like would have that that culture built in. But many of us um, don't have that. And um, and so the question becomes like, how do we build that again? Um, not only for times of celebration for holidays for lifetime, you know, life cycle events, but also for, um, for mourning. Um, because it's awfully strange if you open up Shiva and a whole bunch of strangers show up, um, you know, and the like. So I just want to share one other thing before, before we, we move on here. And this is not me being critical of this other culture. In, in, in my love for the Jewish practice of this um, and thinking, affirming what Cheryl said, that I think we got it right. What I'm not saying is someone else got it wrong, Right. Um, right, um, that you don't have to be, um, you know, for me to be right, it doesn't mean that you're wrong. And so, um, uh, but I do want to share one experience that struck me as interesting and strange, but again, it's not me judging it, just kind of my encounter with it was so different. I was in Ghana for a summer in uh, 2003, and I was in this village, and, um, and like some young children took my hand and ran me through a forest, maybe like a quarter mile. And um, they ran me through this forest, and I didn't know where they were taking me in this village and we, and I started hearing like drums and chanting and they brought me into this hut. And um, there was a, a young woman, maybe in her forties, who uh, was dead on a bed, dressed up in, in colorful garb um, and a lot of makeup on um, and um, which was more like paint. Um, and um, a full room of people dancing around her and playing drums and chanting and drinking. There was, it was like a big celebratory. It was partially like a party and partially like, I don't know if a seance is the right word because I don't really know what a seance is. Maybe someone could tell me, but a little bit of like a spiritual awakening, a little bit of like a, a, a calling, um, like incense and stuff going on. And, um, and then they carried her, her body, not in a casket, but kind of exposed out to, to a space where they buried her in a way that had both tribal influence and Christian influence. Because as you know, because of uh, missionary activities and colonization, the Christian influence is kind of interesting in Africa. And um, in that it's, some tribes are kind of partially tribal and partially Muslim, and some tribes are partially tribal and partially Christian. And they've kind of blended their Christianity into tribalism and blended their Islam into tribalism. And of course, there's some that are just tribal and not monotheistic influence at all. But I share this just because when we're so used to a Jewish practice of mourning, sometimes an encounter with a different approach is so startling. It's so startling and it can feel disrespectful because as Jews, we would never do it that way. But of course, they were honoring this woman in their own way. Yes, Aglaia. Hi. Okay, so first, do you really want to know what a seance is? Yes, I, yeah, 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 please tell me what a seance is. <laughs> all right, all right, just bear in mind, I've, I've seen jazz funerals, okay, so anyway, okay. all right, so um, seances are not exactly cool, because, um, well, remember where I'm from, people come to New Orleans to learn how to do all kinds of weird things, uh -huh. and people are buried above ground in New Orleans because we're below sea, you know, it's below sea level, so they're in these sarcophagi and everything. Uh, people do some really messed up stuff in these, yeah, New Orleans is not the best place to go if you want to meet people well it's the best place to go if you want to meet people who are taken in by racist stereotypes and want to believe that they're calling up evil spirits and stuff like that though with ouija boards and garbage but anyway though yeah <laughs> okay but i've also seen jazz funerals too so i you know on the whole thing i was just kind of wondering though we're talking about communities and everything though um is it long story short okay um if I'm not uh, just, I'm not knocking being part of a religious community or anything though, but it, do you really have to be part 
of a religious community to behave this way. Does that, I'm not trying to knock it or anything like that, but, but um, yeah, it's just my, I mean, these are things that can happen outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Great. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah. I most certainly think one does not need to be a part of a religious community in order to do this stuff. I think that um, a lot of this is private and personal and uh, done in isolation. I think the part um, of, of comforting and being comforted is a part where um, people, other people are needed. And we may call those other people community or religious community. Or we may call them a group of friends um, or, and colleagues or family. Um, and community is evolving. Our sense of like who our people are is evolving. Um, sometimes our people are in other cities and states and countries. Mm-hmm. Sometimes our people are not people I see consistently, um, are not a part of our own cultural groups or religious groups. And so, um, I think the hard part is when there's not a shared community is mm-hmm. to share kind of the norms of what we want. I guess one could send an email saying, Hey, my partner died yesterday. I want everyone to come to my house and here are the 20 norms I want you to follow. But that feels a little bit strained and kind of demanding. And it feels a little easier. Right? If we're in a community of norms, um, that feels a little bit kind of um, easier in some ways. That's kind of the, the benefit of a community. But yeah, you raise a good point about like, about what that looks like and, and how we can find that. So let's come back to that. Toby, let, 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 let's go over to Toby. Still on mute, Toby. I have a friend um, who recently lost a daughter and this friend, I mean, we've been friends for 40 years. We worked together. We were uh, very, very close, uh, she and her husband. And uh, I grew up with this daughter. I mean, literally she was in her forties and I, I met her when I think she was eight or nine. And um, uh, the, you know, you know, when losing a parent is one thing, you kind of expect that. Uh, and even as distressing as it's, it may be, um, it's still one of those things that most people go through. But losing a child, I think, it, it is a totally other thing. And here's here's the rub. And here I'm hoping that you can provide me with some insight as to how to deal with this. Um, my my friend is a very pragmatic person. She's very fact based. Very, she's always the one you go to when you're in trouble, because she's always the one that's going to figure out the way to fix things. <laughs> and and, and she, you know, this young lady died. She had liver problems for a long time. It wasn't a surprise that she passed. And her the rest the, her life in the last year or so was very difficult. And. Uh, my friend and her husband had a trip planned to Portugal like days after after her daughter died. And the only thing that she said, to, she sent out an email to us and said, here's what happened, you know, um, arrived, passed and things. And um, we'll have a celebration in December. And, you know, I'm looking at my, the other people that got this email, we're talking to each other going, what, how do we respond to this? Because, what, and I, I don't have an, I mean, obviously you send another email and you say, I'm really, you know, what can I do? How can I help? And, you know, it's, it just felt surreal. And I still- Sorry, I, so Toby, the one part I missed is what does her email request say? Basically it says, we're going to have a celebration of her life in December when we get back from our travels. She has a whole bunch of trips scheduled. Oh, wow. And so they're in Portugal and then they're going to uh, doing a bike trip of uh, Italy and then they're going to Africa and then they're going, they'll be back in September. And I'm like, I don't know what the appropriate, there's no rules for this. How do I, I want to, be support. And, you know, you send an email saying, I want to support you any way I can. What can I do? Well, we're going to be gone. So don't worry about it. So, you know, my feeling is I want to, I've sent her a couple of emails just saying, you know, I remember Mariah on this trip that we took and I have pleasant memories of this. Hmm. I get zero back, which I know, you know, she's, she's gone. I get that. And maybe she doesn't want to remember this for right now, but I'm just, any feedback? Help here. Yeah, I would love to hear other people's thoughts on this. Oh, uh, Aglaia, you want to jump in first? 
Uh, are you sure? <laughs> I mean, you probably have more interesting things to say than me, but I have some. No, I, I don't think so, but let me say a few things, then I'll come back to you. Um, okay. So, which is that, um, lose it, yeah, th th this is not the normal approach to losing a child. Um, for many people in my experience, um, are just beyond, beyond distraught. Um, com feel completely broken. It breaks the natural cycle of the idea of a parent dying before a child. They feel guilt. They feel, um, uh, and, and, and if the child is younger, all the more so. If it's an adult child, it, it's, still, it's still incredibly difficult, but still. Um, and oftentimes we want to try to cheer someone up to get them out of the house, to bring them joy. And in these other moments, these other rare moments, we almost want to slow things down. Like you're saying, for people who aren't processing it. They're kind of hiding from it um, in a way that's going to kind of crash and burn later. And so, um, and so, yeah, in a moment like this, there's this tension between like giving someone space to mourn how they want um, and also like doing all we can to support them. And there's no right answer. Though. On the one hand, we don't want to be pushy and push ourselves upon them. On the other hand, we know that they need, we know that they need, um, support. And so we want to make totally clear we're there for them. I, I know people who push themselves upon me and it wasn't until the fourth time they pushed themselves upon me that I said, yes, the first three, I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't even want to answer. Finally, I'm like, oh, you really want to do something, don't you? Like you're the one I need, you know, because the first, everyone else who sends an email, let me know if I can do anything. Oh, thanks so much. Have a great day. You know, but the, you pushed four times. Like I'm, I'm in now. I'm not saying other people are like me. Right. But, um, but to, sometimes a little persistence, you know, assuming we don't sense that we're rubbing them wrong can be a good thing. What can I do for you? Like, you know, um, you know, and other times we have to back off and there's no right or wrong answers there, Toby. I think you're totally right. And, um, and, and, you know, there's complicated relationships. Like we talked about last week, some people have, have very strained relationships with a parent or with a child in a way that the morning is very complicated and it's going to take six months or six years before they're ready to kind of engage in a certain type of grieving because there's another process they're going through before that. So Aglaia, um, I'd love to hear what you want to share here as well. Um, okay. So long story short, I worked in pediatric oncology like a long time ago. And um, yeah, well, if I worked in pediatric oncology, you know, the experiences I had and everything. Um, Long story short, um, I was now bear in mind, y'all. Okay, I'm really this artist has been involved in so many controversies. I lost track years ago. So if I'm offending anyone by mentioning this song, I'm really sorry. But there was a song um, about, I don't know, must have been about 18 years ago or so. Like, um, so probably no one here listened to it but me. But um, it was a rap song in which the rapper is describing how one of his own mentees ended up dying. And he's explaining like how, like he blamed himself for it. And so what really struck me about that song, though, because I happened to listen to it, hear it again recently, though, but the structure of the song is, um, is supported by a military tattoo. And you hear the chorus, it's about toy soldiers, the 1980s song, Toy Soldiers and everything. And so what I thought about, though, was at that point, I mean, I, you know, it's not just pediatric oncology, but there've been other situations too. This whole idea that you were responsible for this person and you were the grown up, and you were supposed to have protected them, blah, 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 all of that stuff and everything. It really did feel like you were walking to a military tattoo and you've got enemy fire going all around you. And so because of that though, like, yeah, um, if she's going on her trip and she says, oh no, I'll just you know, I'll get back, I'll get back to you and everything. It might be because she's still trying to like stand like at that rigid, extremely rigid standard of marching to a military tattoo. Yeah, so, yeah. And so because of that, though, she might not like, it might be <laughs> to get to the next point to get to the next point to get to the next point. I know that um, when I was dealing with, because um, I also had to tell my mom her own patients had died. So like, um, it, long story, but anyway, though, um, I mean, we had a two-year-old who died. I've had students who like became LSD heads, you know, stuff like that. You don't know, like basically though, it's just sort of like, okay, I got to get to the next point. I got to get to the next point. So, um, I don't know, but, um, it's, if she, enemy fires all around her, 
probably. And, and so because and Gloria, of that's that's a really astute way. She had these trips planned. She's a traveler. Uh, they love to travel. And she'd have these trips planned for a really long time. This was an adult daughter. She was 40 years old. So it's not yeah. like she was a year old. And I mm-hmm. there's a lot of difference there. And she had been sick with this liver issue for quite some time. So it wasn't it wasn't as much of a surprise as if somebody gets in a car accident or gets shot or, you know, something like that. Um, but I, your, your point is really hits home to me that I've got all this stuff going on. You know, I know that you care about me because I we've been friends for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that you care about me, but you know, uh, back off on this stuff for right now, because I'm doing this other thing and, you know, I, I'm just, I'm trying to get from here to here. And uh, don't remind me of this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. yeah. And not, not so blatantly, but um, yeah, that's yeah. I'll, I'll shut myself up here now. Thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. You know, that, that that's a really important case. I'm curious to hear from others as well, as we want to think about the nuances of how we could show kindness to people who are mourning. And there's such a diverse um, range of experiences that people are going through and how we can achieve that goal. Um, let's see, who have we not heard from yet? Hannah, Eric, Francine, I don't know if any of you want to jump in. Um, I, I'd be curious about, uh, not just, you know, we're learning about here how to support the person mourning, but what happens to the people supporting the people supporting the person mourning. So like if a friend's parent dies or no, if a friend's parent dies, you're supporting them, but then, do you know what I'm saying? I'm being a little confusing, but if you're support, if you're, if you don't know the person who's died, but you're supporting the person who's supporting them, I don't know, as, as, as it ripples out into community, what happens then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. So yeah. So we normally think of mourning as seven types of relationships. There's the, there's the spouse, there's the brother-sister, there's the daughter-son, there's the mother-father, right? So it, it's up to the parents, down to the kids, over to the siblings, and then a spouse. So those are the seven types of, of formal mourners. Um, but then there's a bunch of relationships there of people who are not formal mourners, such as a cousin, an uncle or aunt, right, an in-law, and, and they're both affected by this and they're kind of supporters of those in the center, right? Going back to like when we talked about Bikur Cholim visiting the sick and then there's the sick and then there's those supporting the sick and there's these, these spheres of, of who's in the center. The, the, the sick is in the center and then the supporter of the sick. And so, and so sometimes the people we have to support are not the central mourners, but are kind of connected to the central mourners. And that's also really uh, important to think about, um, about kind of what our role is there. And um, on a number of, of, of levels, um, because of responsibilities they may have and because of sensitivities. Think about young children who are not formal mourners, but who are a part of this process. Um, and so, yeah, thank you, for, thank you for flagging that sensitivity because we don't see the formal obligations apply in the same way as we do to kind of the central mourners. Or take another case. Um, uh, another case would be um, someone, who is, someone who is adopted um, will go through formal mourning, assuming they chose to still identify with that family they were adopted in. Um, that's a case where in all, in all, in all sense, in all, in all, in all, in all senses, they will um, treat their adoptive family as um, at, like biological family. Um, you know, and then there's the case where um, uh, th- there's an estrangement there and they might engage with it a little bit differently. So there's a few different, um, yeah, there's a few different dimensions here. Uh, but yeah, Hannah, thank you for flagging that because there's also the, the level of community like, for example, there was a philanthropist in our community that died a few years ago, and few people in the community were actually formal mourners, but everyone had kind of been influenced not only by her, uh, her, her charitable nature, but also just by her, you know, her friendship. And there was kind of a communal mourning for someone 
like that. She was kind of, a, uh, in some ways, a matriarch in the community. Um, and so how does a community kind of support each other in that? Yeah. Hey, Eddie. Yeah. Thanks, Rabbi. Um, does Torah have anything to say on choosing not to mourn when somebody has been hurtful to you? Or like, or, or are we obligated to mourn them? So I'm thinking about like maybe somebody who has been abusive to you your entire life and then they, they pass away and like there's like that obligation that you have to be there at the morning. But what if you don't want to be because of the abuse, because of that person hurting you? Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Yeah. So most certainly, most certainly there is halakhic literature that indicating that one is not obligated to mourn for someone that was abusive to them. Um, one is patur, one is exempt from that. Um, the hard part is, um, when it's gray, now I don't mean gray about abuse, but gray, there's, there's, there's a, a love hate relationship, a case where it's not, oh, you abused me. And then we were estranged for 20 years, but you were so good to me and you were abusive to me, right? You loved me, right? And you took care of me and you abused me. And so I, I hate you and I love you. And right. And there's a lot of people in that category as well. And this is a case where there's a good reminder that the mourning is not only a contribution to the deceased, but also meant to be cathartic for the individual. And so there are some cases where one would simply say, I'm not going to mourn because of the abuse here. Another case, one might say, I am going to mourn because I need it. That person doesn't deserve it. I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for me, right? And that's another way to kind of think about a type of mourning. Now, um, the, um, the, uh, the one other thing I would say there is um, that, um, oh, I lost it. Um, but uh, maybe it'll come back to me. So, so yeah, that's kind of the uh, kind of the short answer. Um, the the uh, a, a similar case, which is not about abuse, but about an estranged relationship. Let's say someone was in the process of a divorce. Right. Uh, obviously, if one was divorced. Um, they may still love that person. They may hate that person. And if they, if they have divorced, they don't have to mourn them at all. They may, they may love them and want to. Want to. Um, but let's say they're in the process, not formally divorced yet. Here's a case where if there wasn't abuse, one would still engage in mourning the process for, um, for, that, for that partner. So there's a lot of levels of complexity here. And, um, and, and we see it emerge. The other question that often emerges is with a convert. If someone converts, they are not formally obligated to mourn their Gentile parents. Now, what, what I mean by that is not that they shouldn't go through their own mourning process as they psychologically and spiritually want. It means that the obligations that Judaism um, proposes for one in a mourning process do not officially apply. However, there are good uh, real approaches suggested that one may take upon themselves that. For one, one may sit shiva for their Gentile parent because they themselves identify as Jewish and, 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 and cases like that. So um, uh, does that answer your question, Eddie? Thanks, Eddie. Yeah, hi, Cheryl. Um, a couple things, uh, when, uh, just to follow up with what Eddie was talking about in the um, newest version of the Yisker uh, service booklet that we have at um, Ortzion, and it's probably across the conservative movement too. Um, there is, when you say on the Yisker, prayer, prayer for parent or child or whatever, there is also a prayer for someone who may have, have you, you may have been in an abusive relationship with or a strange relationship with. Oh. There's, there isn't a prayer for that now too. Mm -hmm. um, and then one other thing is that... Um, uh, as far what what Toby was talking about, and that is that I have a friend whose um, husband died it's a long time ago, but she began dating shortly thereafter, like about three months later. And her children, of course, took issue with that. But she said, you know, he was sick for two years. I've been and I knew what was going to be the end was going to be here. And so this is what I needed. I need, I needed this. I needed people. I need whatever I need companionship. 
And, um, you know, it's always difficult for her children to understand, well, why aren't you mm-hmm. continuing mourning? She said, I, I mourned for two years. Mm-hmm. I, I already mourned for two years. You know, I, I'm now that he's officially gone, I'm, I'm moving on. Yeah. Um, not that I'll ever forget him and she never has, but still, you know, it's like you have to do what's good for you. And then the third thing that you talked about, I have several friends who are, um, converts to Judaism and mm-hmm. who have chosen when they have lost a parent to um, sit Shiva. I mean, they've embraced Judaism and the tenets of Judaism say that this, I hate to use the word supposed to, but you know, this is what, these are the directions <coughs> you're supposed to take when someone mourns. So um, obligation or not, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I don't know of anyone who hasn't chosen to adopt um the 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 tenets of of mourning of of the loss of a parent who was not Jewish. Yeah, uh, thank you, Cheryl. There are a lot there, uh, you know. And one one kind of interesting thing that COVID taught us. So imagine you're in quarantine. Um, I, I imagine some of you have been, some of you haven't been. Imagine you're in quarantine. And you're like, I just want to see people. I just want to like hug somebody. You know what I mean? So imagine like. You get the benefit of quarantine where you're just like, get to sit alone, like sit at the, sit at the house for a week. But then there's like two hours where like everybody comes in. Imagine if like your COVID experience was like that. You're like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, it's gonna be alone. And then two hours, everybody's welcome, right? <laughs> How great would that be? So it, it, you can kind of think of it like, you know, like, um, like that a little bit. Yeah, and Cheryl, your point, we see this all the time, this case of, of ch- child resentment towards a parent who's now dating. Um, very shortly after a passing. We see this very consistently. Um, and yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm surprised none of you yet have, have said what I thought someone was going to say. What about my dog? Nobody said it. I, I was convinced someone was going to, within a half hour, say, what about my dog? And there's two different reactions we, three different reactions we get here. One of type says, I'm offended. I'm offended. How could you possibly confor- can compare a con- mourning a parent or a family member with mourning a dog. Like I said, I'm offended. Others who say, what do you mean? My dog is my family. Like my, if my dog dies, like that's like losing a family member. Like I, I need a practice. And others who say like, look, I love my dog. I, I need some a little morning practice, but it's different than a person. You know, they're kind of in a middle camp. So anyways, I'm not going to answer that because nobody asked it, but I was waiting for someone to say, what about, what about my dog? Can so, I just jump in on, you know, okay. Yeah. Just to, about the, uh, lady who's started dating three months after her husband died. Um, we already went over this, uh, but um, people are not to be um, held responsible for things that they say when they are, you know, in a lot in that kind of pain. Um, just from my perspective, um, she's in a lot, the lady's in a lot of pain and, you know, I mean, the children are in a lot of pain also. So um, I don't know, maybe that's relevant to talk about. I know that also I said some interesting things to people, you know, I've said some interesting things to people before after someone died, but it really stuff that I would not say, (laughs) I would not have said had I been you know, pretty much in my right mind. So I'm kind of wondering in the case of, okay, so some, the children are resentful because the mom's dating again. Are any of them to be judged for, you know, any of that? Right. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're right. I I think um, we want to really suspend judgment on what people need in times of losses. (laughs) We learn that, um, we learn that Yitzchak, um, marries Rivka um, right after his mother Sarah dies. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that kind of taps into Freud a little bit around like, you know, a, a man marries a woman to replace his mother and, you know, these kinds of things. <laughs> um, you know, but, but there's complicated stuff there. And sometimes actually when someone loses someone, they, they, they need someone. And if there's not someone, um, they need to find someone. And, um, and that's understandable. And so... This is also the case around divorce. Some people get divorced. They never um, want to marry someone again or, or be in a significant relationship or have trouble finding one. Others like immediately, like they need a, um, you know, they need to be out there, to find someone. Some people like, like being alone. Some people don't. It's very complicated. And so um, it's hard for a child to imagine that what their parent is, is not doing is replacing them. The parent is thinking, I had that relationship 
and I still have it. And I'm a part of something else here. It's not a replacement. It's not, you know, I'm doing, I, I'm, I, it's a different need. So yeah, there's a lot to un- unpack there. It's, you know, think about children too. It's like somebody can't handle a friend having another best friend. You know, it's like you meet a child. They're like, you're my best friend. How could you have another best friend? You know, it's like, it's a different relationship, you know? So, okay. Any, any, uh, anyone else want to jump in here? Yeah, By the way, Toby, Toby, I was thinking about you this week because I don't know if you've been following this death row case around uh, Ramiro Gonzalez, who wants to donate his kidney. He's supposed to be executed in nine days. And he's asking Governor Abbott for a 30-day extension so we can donate his kidney. Um, and there's a lot of different feelings around this. I'm, I'm advocating that he should have this opportunity. <laughs> well, most definitely. Yeah. The, these, these people, and I, I only have two on death row out of the 150 that I represented in oh. death row cases. But um, uh, I will tell you, I've, I've done, and lately I've been doing a lot of appellate work when I was actually practicing it was courtroom stuff. I was the trial lawyer. But now that I'm not doing courtroom stuff, I've, I've been doing a lot of appellate work for other lawyers. And uh, that issue is one, he's not alone, this young man, this gentleman, um, in wanting to, to contribute at the time. You know, you make a lot of decisions. It's like people always say, you only find God when you're in a foxhole or something. I don't know, we hold but in prison too, Um, I am very much advocating for allowing anyone, no matter their circumstances, to be able to contribute in some way to help other people. And so consequently, there's a, there's a big movement and there is an amicus brief that is, is, which is a bunch of lawyers get together and they say, how can we make this happen? And they all write and they all write different points of view, of legal points of view as to why this should, why this should be allowed. Yeah. So hopefully, yeah. um, hopefully this young man will be allowed to do that because there's it's not going to stop him from executing him. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Right. And what is the difference? You've been on death row for 16, 20 years, whatever. Another thirty days. What the who the hell cares? Right, right, right. You know. Thank you, but Toby. Anyway, Thank you, Toby. Um, so I do see that Francine wrote in the chat. What about my dog? Um, okay. What about my dog? So it's a very fair question since I brought it up. I was waiting for someone to bring it up. Um, um, and the truth is, um, people can do what they want. People can do what they want and people are going to do very different things. Some people are going to just, uh, cremate the dog. Some people are going to bury the dog, right? Some people are going to replace the dog immediately. Some people are not. Um, and people are going to mourn the loss of that dog differently. And I think we should not put that down. I think that Relationships are complicated. Relationships to, to, to animal companions can be complicated. And I know especially, um, I know a lot of people that it would leave a, a big, really big hole in their life if, if, their, uh, if their pet was not there. And so um, the idea of embracing, you know, a formal more mourning practice, I think it would, you know, um, you know I, I don't know that I would say somebody, some people say, should I say Kaddish for my dog? And the truth is, um, uh, while I wouldn't encourage someone take, taking such a formal uh, morning prayer that's meant for humans to do it, there is no prohibition on reciting Kaddish for anyone. And so if somebody wanted to recite Kaddish with their dog in mind, I don't think that would be a problem. And so uh, that might be very meaningful for someone. So friends, yes, yes, Aglaia, yeah. What about someone who died many, many generations back? Well, not many, many generations back, but about... Ah. Yeah, generations back who never got Kaddish. Uh, uh, yes. So one cannot go back and like sit Shiva after the fact, like that's your week, you lost your week, right? Yeah. But um, Kaddish can be, can be uh, later. So one can say, listen, I, I wasn't ready to say Kaddish for this person 10 years ago or I didn't, whatever the case was, like, um, I but I want to do it now. Yeah. Like that? Yeah. yeah it's my great-grandmother. I never knew her, so... Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, to find out, calculate her Hebrew yard site and say it on that date is kind of interesting. There's, there's actually a, a, a computer system for that. You could put in, if you, if you type in calculate a yard site, you put in the year and date um, of when they died and it'll give you their Hebrew yard site. So uh-huh. friends, ne- next week we are moving from individuals to all people. 
And so we've been doing things like visiting the sick and honoring parents and lifting up the poor and caring for children, loving the stranger and burying the dead and caring for vulnerable children and supporting brides and grooms, caring for widows, peace in the home, respecting the elderly and comforting mourners. And now we're moving kind of to a more principled area that applies like in lots of different moments to all people. And so next week is Dan Lechavskut, judging favorably, judging favorably. And that will be a lot of fun to be with you all for that. So have a great day. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.